0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. If you're a fan of the classic TV show King of the Hill, then you will more than likely be familiar with Hank Hill's bathtub full of peaches. Well, that's essentially what we're going to be talking about today. Except it's not just a bathtub, it's a state on the southern coast of the US. Established in 1732, the last of the 13 original colonies, Georgia was named after King George II. Oddly enough, it was proposed that it be the Australia of the US, a prison colony. This didn't come to fruition, though, and its primary function was to protect South Carolina from the Spanish enemies in Florida. You gotta keep Florida Man in check, I guess, even in 1732. Georgia is a death penalty state. The most recent execution at the time of writing took place on January 29, 2020, but there is another man getting close to being put down, who I will talk about later on. This state has a lot of interesting cases, including a Supreme Court decision that changed the US as we knew it back in the 70s. So grab a tall glass of iced tea and hold on to your butts. We're going to the country, gonna eat a lot of peaches. Many people who go on to commit violent crimes blame their upbringing for their actions. Being poor and hungry can really fuck you up. In the early 1950s carlton michael gary was born to a mother in columbus georgia who couldn't afford to take care of him and a father who refused to because of their humble situation gary was moved around a lot he was often left to be tended by his aunt and his great aunt who both worked as maids for rich white women this on its own would probably cause some mental health problems But an incident that occurred while Gary was in elementary school would more than likely contribute to his future crimes as well. Gary suffered severe head trauma after a playground accident. He was knocked unconscious. I have personal knowledge of brain injuries. Some families have a lot of cancer, some have heart problems, and people in my circle seem to have brain injuries. My grandpa battled MS for many years. My stepdad suffered from headaches for a long time and ultimately died due to a brain aneurysm. And my biological dad was in a motorcycle accident when I was 8 that fucked him up beyond belief. He was in a coma for two weeks and they told us that he wasn't going to make it. But he pulled through somehow and has been completely different ever since. Brain injuries are, for lack of a better word, fucking scary. So we've got poverty and head trauma, but we're missing a key ingredient here in our psychopath soup: drug use. And boy, did Carlton Gary like his drugs. His criminal career started young. Between the ages of 14 and 18, he was arrested on several occasions for robbery, assault, and even arson. Gary ended up getting married and having a couple kids. He moved to Albany, New York in 1970, where he planned on making a career as a singer. His criminal shenanigans didn't stop, though. Elderly women in the area started to die of a much more terrifying cause than just broken hips and heart attacks. A 62-year-old woman named Marion Brewer was staying at the Hampton Hotel in Albany. On the morning of February 12, 1970, she was found strangled to death in her room. She was face up on her bed with noticeable marks on her throat. Money was missing from her pocketbook, and it was determined that she had also been raped. Now, I don't know about any of you listening, but crimes against kids and crimes against the elderly set me the fuck off. It takes a special kind of fucked up to target the vulnerable. I mean, 62 really isn't that old, but still. Just two months after this first murder, another woman staying in a different hotel would also be found in a very unpleasant situation. On April 14, 1970, 85-year-old Nellie Farmer was found next to her bed in the Wellington Hotel. She was partially clothed and had a long piece of fabric next to her body. She had been raped before being strangled to death. A set of fingerprints would be found at Nellie's crime scene that would ultimately lead police to their man. After Carlton Gary was caught trying to assault another woman, his fingerprints were matched to the ones they found at the Wellington Hotel. Gary had an explanation for this. He was there to rob the place, but it was his accomplice, John Lee Mitchell, who had done the rape and murder. There was no material evidence connecting Mitchell to the crime, but he was charged anyway. Gary testified against him in court. After further investigation, John Mitchell was acquitted. Carlton Gary was only charged with robbery in the case. He was paroled in 1975. I understand that technology wasn't quite as advanced as it is today, but what the fuck were these cops doing? You have a dead old woman who's been raped, you have fingerprints, and you have a guy claiming it was his accomplice that did the real nasty shit, but said accomplice was later cleared. Somebody murdered that old lady. Logic tells me it's probably the guy who admitted to the robbery and left his fucking fingerprints everywhere. But he just gets to walk, with nothing more than a robbery charge. After Gary was paroled, he moved to Syracuse, New York. While he was here, two more elderly women would be attacked. One of them was able to give a description of her assailant, but neither of them could identify him in a lineup as it had been dark when they were attacked. The one unnamed survivor was very confident that her attacker was a black guy with a mustache and that she'd been strangled with a scarf. Gary was sent back to prison. Not for the attacks, but for a parole violation. He had been caught trying to sell some coins that had been stolen from one of the Syracuse victims. Again, is common sense just not a thing? What the fuck? (laughs) On August 22, 1977, Gary managed to saw through the bars of his low-security prison cell and escape. He went back home to Georgia, where his depravity would continue. Just one month after he'd managed to bust out of prison, Gary broke into the home of Fern Jackson, a 60-year-old resident of Columbus. He raped her before strangling her to death with a nylon stocking. A little more than a month after Fern's murder, Gary killed 71-year-old Jean Diamondstein, then 89-year-old Florence Scheibel and 69-year-old Martha Thurman within a week of each other. Both were raped and then strangled. He took a bit of a break after these two and struck again on December 28, 1977. He raped and murdered 74-year-old Kathleen Woodruff but this time did not leave a nylon stocking at the scene. Two months later, on February 12, 1978, a woman named Ruth Schwab was attacked, but Gary fled after she triggered an alarm she had next to her bed. Rather than go home and let some of the adrenaline die down, he made his way just two blocks from Ruth's house and broke into the home of 78-year-old Mildred Borum. Unfortunately, she met her end the same way as Gary's other victims. On April 20, 1978, Carlton Gary would strike one final time. The last woman to be killed by Gary was 61-year-old Janet Kofer. Police announced that they believed an African-American male was responsible for the murders. This is 1970s Georgia. I'm sure that's an announcement they made pretty frequently simply due to the time, but they were actually correct on this one. I guess the police in Georgia were a little better at their job than the ones in New York. Believe it or not, this case gets even more complicated. A man calling himself the Chairman of the Forces of Evil threatened to start murdering black women if the stocking strangler wasn't caught. Holy shit, this guy. Turns out he wasn't just your average crazy dude. He was William Henry Hans, a black serial killer who was trying to cover up his own crimes by blaming white vigilantes. Police were hoping that he was the stocking strangler, but Janet was murdered after he was arrested, so there was no way. We're going to take a little road trip up to Gaffney, South Carolina, where Carlton Gary was arrested for robbery in December of 1978. He confessed to this crime and was given 21 years. I'm sure you know where this is going. Gary managed to escape from custody on March 15th, 1983. He was out terrorizing the community for a year before they managed to catch him again. This time, the police were armed with new evidence, including a gun and some other fingerprints that led them to believe Gary was the serial killer they'd been looking for. Gary went to trial for the murders he'd committed in Georgia. His fingerprints had been found at four of the crime scenes. Pretty cut and dry if you ask me. On August 26, 1986, Gary was convicted of three of the murders. The next day, he was sentenced to death. Gary's conviction wasn't seen as justice to everyone, though. According to a book by an investigative journalist named David Rose, Gary's lawyer was not given state funding to properly defend him. His fingerprints were also alleged to have not been matched to the ones found at the crime scenes until seven years later when the case was re-examined. On top of that, the interview where Gary supposedly confessed was not recorded and notes were not taken. A police officer wrote his confession several days after the interview. Not from any notes, or any recordings, or even with the help of another cop. He did it from his own memory. Because that's always accurate. Nevertheless, the confession was entered into evidence. It was unsigned and undated. Gary denied having made this confession. There was also an allegation that Gary's semen antigen secretion was not a match to the perpetrator. You have to remember this was back in a time when DNA testing wasn't a thing. And then there was the bite mark. A cast made from a bite mark left on a victim didn't match Gary's bite pattern. Do not get me fucking started on bite mark evidence. It is probably the least accurate thing the state uses to try to hang people. It was also noted that Gary had a substantial amount of dental work done while he was in prison. Supporters of Gary claimed that the prosecution withheld this evidence at trial. You know, like they do. This is 1970s Georgia. Need I say more? the racial tension here was out of control. David Rose claimed in his book on this case that the judge's family had been linked to lynchings and other fucked up things in Columbus. I don't doubt it, to be completely honest. This was back in a time where racism was an actual problem. And here come the torches and pitchforks. Well, I had a good run. Apparently on June 9th, 1900, a young black farm laborer named Simon Adams was caught trying to burglarize his employer's house. He made the mistake of trying to break in through the bedroom window of one of the man's daughters. The girl made a scene and Adams tried to hide in her wardrobe. The men of the house, God, I love 1900s culture, caught him and tied him up at gunpoint. Adams was put into the custody of a bailiff who was supposed to take him to jail. The bailiff's name was A. Brewster Land. That is a hell of a name. Rather than take the direct route to the jail, Land took a detour through the woods. A group of vigilantes was waiting. They took Adams and dragged him to a 30-foot rocky overhang, whatever the fuck that is, and pushed him into the water. He thankfully survived this, but as the current dragged him downstream, the vigilantes shot at him with rifles. The last time he came up for air, he was hit behind the ear. Land was later asked if he knew any of the vigilantes. I didn't recognize anybody, he said. I was more concerned with the guns than the men behind them. The murder of Simon Adams was attributed to persons unknown, which was apparently the case with most lynchings. In June of 1912, Brewster Land's 12-year-old nephew Cleo was killed by a shotgun blast to the eye. It was alleged that a 14-year-old black boy named T.Z. was the perpetrator. Despite being different races, Cleo and T.Z. were known to be good friends. T.Z. claimed that they had been playing with the gun when it went off accidentally. Okay, hi. I'm about as pro-Second Amendment as they come, but for the love of fuck... Teach your kids not to play with guns. damn, why is that so difficult for some people? TZ was charged with murder for this, but the jury found him guilty of manslaughter. Amazing, considering every member of the jury was white, and this was 1912. Cleo's father, Will, who was Brewster Land's brother, wasn't satisfied with this verdict. Will, Brewster, and their brother Ed rounded up 15 other men and took TZ from the courthouse. They put him on a streetcar and took him to Winton where he was pushed out and shot in the street in front of a crowd. The coroner couldn't determine how many bullets had killed him, but the number was set between 25 and 50 because a gun went off and accidentally killed his friend. This is just fucking sad. John Land was Brewster's son. He would later go on to become a judge and preside over Carlton Gary's case. Carlton Gary was an innocent man. Except that he wasn't. In 2007, when DNA testing was more reliable, he was linked to the rape and murder of Marion Fisher in New York. Are we really surprised? The prosecutor in Onondaga County decided that it would be best not to extradite Gary, as he was already on death row in Georgia and the extradition would present an escape risk. They'd been down that road before and weren't about to go back. Gary appealed many times, as cowardly murderers often do, but his luck ran out on December 1st, 2009, when the Supreme Court refused to hear any more of his bullshit. On December 4th, the court set his execution date for December 16th. He had less than two weeks to live. The day before his scheduled demise, the Board of Pardons denied a request to stay his execution. It was happening. Carlton Gary was not executed on December 16th, 2009. Just hours before he was set to die, the Georgia Supreme Court halted his execution and held a hearing to determine if DNA testing should be done to determine whether he was guilty or innocent. This testing was carried out and determined that his DNA was a match to that found at the crime scene of Gene Diamondstein. They had him. Raping and killing even one old lady is deserving of the death penalty if you ask me. They had DNA on him for two, plus fingerprints for several others. He was guilty. There was no denying that. Carlton Michael Gary was executed by lethal injection on March 15, 2018. This date was exactly 35 years to the day after his escape from custody in South Carolina. He sat on death row for nearly 32 years. Due to the racial tensions in the South at this time, many people believe that an innocent man was put down for killing a bunch of old ladies. They had DNA, there's no denying it. Whether he was guilty of all of them, or just one. He raped and murdered someone. If that doesn't deserve a state-funded end, I don't know what does. Gary offered no final words. He didn't want anything special for his last meal, instead opting for the institutional tray of a hamburger, a hot dog, white beans, coleslaw, and this is my favorite part. Grape beverage. Whatever the fuck that is. Some crimes are so senseless, so random, and so brutal, they leave me speechless. The only other thing that leaves me as stunned as the crimes committed are the people who oppose the death penalty for the perpetrators. There were a lot of people on that side in this next case, and after looking into the details, I am struggling to understand why. Carl Isaacs was a 19-year-old convict in Maryland serving time for breaking and entering. Isaacs was a troubled young man. He'd been diagnosed with depression and had an inability to deal with his anger. He had a particular disdain for women. As a teenager, he ran away from a foster home and sold his body to a pedophile in exchange for a place to sleep. At the ripe old age of 16, Isaacs was arrested for the first time. The following year, he'd be caught stealing more things and land himself a prison sentence in the Maryland State Penitentiary. Just two days after his arrival, a riot would break out. Carl Isaacs was a small man. Because of this, the other inmates targeted him, and he was raped for over eight hours. He would later be transferred to the Maryland Correction Camp, then to the minimum security Poplar Hill facility. When he arrived at Poplar Hill, he very quickly met up with his half-brother, Wayne Coleman, who was also serving time for car theft and burglary. Despite being seven years older than Isaacs, Coleman was shy and took the role of a follower. He was easily talked into a daring escape. Coleman's only condition was that he be allowed to bring a friend with him. This friend would turn out to be his gay prison lover, George Dungee, who was serving time for a contempt of court citation that came about when he didn't pay child support. Carl Isaacs had an immediate hatred for Dungee simply because he was black. On May 5th, 1973, the three men climbed out a bathroom window and hid in the woods near Poplar Hill. Several hours later, they made their way to Baltimore and stole a car. Here's where it gets ridiculous. The authorities at Poplar Hill were aware that the men had escaped, but due to them not being a threat to the public, they decided not to tell the police that their capture was imperative. Maybe dodging child support payments isn't an issue but theft is kind of a big deal. The men remained in Baltimore for a few days, raising hell and enjoying their freedom. Carl Isaacs decided that he wanted to bring his 15-year-old brother Billy along for the ride. Why not? In for a penny, in for a pound, am I right? The now four young men spent the following week driving around Maryland and terrorizing the community. They broke into several houses and made off with clothes, guns, and money. Their half-baked plan was to make their way south to either Florida or Mexico, which makes perfect sense. They wanted to live the good life, doing drugs and drinking and partying it up. They had it all wrong, though. You're supposed to go north. Drugs, alcohol, and blistering heat don't mix. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a psychopath. During their trip, the men passed through Mcconnellsburg, Pennsylvania and stole a truck. This truck would get them all the way down to Seminole County, Georgia. Noticing that they were almost out of gas, the group spotted a pump near a mobile home and decided to check it out. I'm not sure exactly what drugs they were on, but there wasn't actually a gas pump, just an empty house. You know where this is going, right? The men decided to burglarize it. The trailer belonged to Jerry and Mary Alday, who were two members of a very hard-working and virtuous family. Everyone was out doing farm work and other errands that day, hence why the trailer was empty. During the burglary, Jerry and his father Ned arrived back home, not realizing anything was amiss. Carl Isaacs met them in the doorway and ordered them inside at gunpoint. Jerry was shot first, followed by Ned. Jimmy Alday, Jerry's brother soon pulled up on a tractor and was also forced into the house. He was also shot. Shortly after this, three more members of the Alday family would pull up to the house. Jerry's wife Mary, followed by his brother Chester and his uncle Aubrey. All three were brought into the house and then separated. Chester and Aubrey were shot in separate rooms while poor Mary waited to learn her fate. Wayne Coleman and Carl Isaacs raped Mary on the kitchen table. Wasn't bad enough to slaughter this entire family. They had to stick their dicks into someone as well. After this, they drove out into the woods and raped her again before George Dungy killed her. The men made their way to Alabama, but were later arrested in West Virginia. You know, it must be nice to live in an area where you can cross state lines without driving for eight hours. Being a criminal out here in the western half of the US must be a pain in the ass. When Carl Isaacs and his accomplices were arrested, they were found to be in possession of several guns that were used in the murders as well as property stolen from the Alday house. After the first trial, Carl Isaacs was interviewed by someone making a documentary about the case. Isaacs admitted to everything they'd done to this poor family. What he said would be used against him in a subsequent trial. Carl Isaacs, Wayne Coleman, and George Dungy were all convicted of the murders and given death sentences. Billy Isaacs managed to walk away with 40 years in exchange for testimony against his brother. He was paroled in 1994. Coleman and Dungy would later have their sentences commuted to life. Perhaps there was a chance Carl Isaacs would walk away with his life as well. Opponents of the death penalty argued that had Isaacs just been given a life sentence, it would have saved the state millions of dollars in funds that were used to battle it out in court. He had been sentenced at a strange time in Georgia's history, right between the abolishment and the reinstatement of the death penalty. The state went so far as to give him medical treatment for cancer just to keep him alive long enough to execute him. Honestly, I'm with the other side on this one. Just let the motherfucker die. Don't waste the money keeping a doomed man breathing just so you can put him down yourself. But I don't believe in abolishing the death penalty, or commuting the sentence of a man who killed five innocent people and raped one of them. Carl Jr. Isaacs was executed by lethal injection on May 6, 2003. He was the longest-serving death row inmate at the time, having gone in at 19 and been executed at 49. None of his family was there with him when he was executed. For the first time in Georgia's history, members of the victim's family were present during the execution. After his death, Isaacs was connected to the murder of 58-year-old Ann Elder, who had been shot to death after he had escaped from prison. Some good did come out of this tragedy. Jerry Alday's niece, Paige McKean, helped get the Alday family bill passed in 2003 which would require state authorities to contact the families of victims in death penalty cases at least twice per year. Until this point, it had been difficult for people to get information about any developments in their cases. Wayne Coleman still sits in a Georgia prison. George Dungee died of a heart attack in prison at the age of 68. Billy Isaacs died in 2009, just 15 years after being paroled. Carl Isaacs didn't have any last words, he simply requested a final prayer and was seen mouthing the word Amen at the end. He requested a last meal of a regular institutional tray, which was pork and macaroni, pinto beans, cabbage, carrot salad, a dinner roll, chocolate cake, and fruit punch, but he pushed the tray away and didn't eat anything. So, in doing this podcast, I've learned quite a bit of random information about law and Supreme Court rulings. One case that keeps coming up is Furman v. Georgia. This case was a big one. In doing my research on the state episodes, I've noticed that there are always two lists. Executions before 1972 and executions after 1976. Believe it or not, in this great nation, there was a period of time where we had abolished the death penalty. Some argue that it was the right decision, but I respectfully disagree. I am all for life sentences in some cases, but we need to be able to put down the monsters that terrorize our society. On August 11, 1967, a 29-year-old father of five named William Mickey Jr. woke up to find a stranger burglarizing his house. The strange man, later identified as William Henry Furman, tried to escape and fired a shot blindly into the direction of the homeowner. That was his original story, anyway. At trial, he tried to claim that he tripped and the gun went off after he fell. Either way, William died during the commission of Furman's felony. That made Furman eligible for the death penalty, according to Georgia state law. After a single day of trial, on September 20th, 1968, Furman was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. He would take his case to the Supreme Court and argue that the death penalty was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four in his favor, citing the 8th and 14th Amendments. The death penalty is considered to be cruel and unusual punishment to some people, apparently. Only two of the nine justices found it to be unconstitutional in all cases, because the majority could not reach a collective agreement as to why capital punishment was unconstitutional. They each wrote separate statements on the matter. Race was a huge issue in this case. It was argued that the death penalty was given to black inmates more than whites. Honestly, after doing a lot of my research these past few months, I see it, at least in some states. Back then, the system definitely seemed to favor white people. The death penalty was abolished in the U.S. on June 29, 1972. Two other cases, Jackson v. Georgia and Branch v. Texas, were also added into this decision, which ended the death penalty in rape cases. Obviously, this decision didn't stick. We're still putting people down to this date. Looking at you, Florida. Another Georgia man by the name of Troy Leon Gregg would bring about the reinstatement of the death penalty in the United States. Gregg was convicted of murdering Fred Simmons and Bob Moore, who had given him a ride in November of 1973. The men had been seen with large amounts of cash, and Gregg saw it as easy money. He and the other man he'd been hitchhiking with, Floyd Allen, waited until they were at a rest stop to pull a gun on the men. Both were shot multiple times and left in a drainage ditch. A third hitchhiker who was not involved in the murders had seen an article about the crime in a newspaper and contacted the police. He explained that he had at one point been in their car and he thought Greg and Allen were headed to Asheville, North Carolina. This is where they would later be apprehended. Greg tried to claim that he shot the men in self-defense. He said that Fred Simmons had punched him and knocked him down in the drainage ditch before coming after him with a knife or a pipe. No explanation for why Bob Moore was shot. The evidence pointed clearly to a cold-blooded murder committed during a robbery. Greg was convicted and sentenced to death. He took his case to the Supreme Court and it was determined that his death sentence was constitutional. It was not cruel and unusual punishment and did not violate the 8th and 14th Amendments. Just for the record, Greg was white. Not sure if that had anything to do with the decision, but I figured I'd note that just in case. Troy Leon Gregg was not executed by electrocution in July of 1980. He escaped from prison the night before he was scheduled to be executed. Don't worry though, he died in a bar fight in North Carolina the following night. There's a man on George's death row who's been waiting to die for nearly 47 years. To put that into perspective, my grandpa was 47 when I was born. That's enough time to pump out a kid, raise that kid, and then have grandkids. Instead, this next guy has spent that time sitting in a cage, waiting for the state to kill him. He deserves it though. This one left me wondering one thing. What the hell is taking so long? Pedophiles should get the death penalty. That's a controversial opinion for some reason, but I stand by it. Anyone who harms a child in that way does not deserve to live. Violence breeds violence. I've said that probably 50 times in this podcast so far. Sexual violence is no different. Combine that with poverty, physical abuse, and an alcoholic mom who couldn't put the bottle down while she was pregnant, and you've got yourself Virgil Presnell Jr. I don't feel as though drug and alcohol use can be blamed for the actions of violent criminals. Fetal alcohol syndrome can't either. There are plenty of people out there, smoking crack and doing magic tricks with sugar packets. Go look it up on YouTube. Not every drug user is a violent psychopath. Some people are born into situations that fuck them up beyond belief. They have no real chance. The state is supposed to step in and help take care of kids born into these situations, but they rarely do. They're too busy going after parents who smoke weed to relax after a long day. Virgil Presnell Jr. was doomed from the start. On April 23rd, 1976, in Clayton County, a 10-year-old girl was walking home from school on a wooded trail. Kids today are spoiled and don't know how grueling it was to walk to and from school, uphill both ways in the snow. That's just for us old people to reminisce about. This little girl, though, holy fuck, I would take that uphill walk in the snow over what she had to deal with any day. On her way home, she was ambushed by Fresnel. He grabbed her and threatened her with a knife. Thankfully, she was able to break free from him and get away. A little less than two weeks later, Presnell would stalk an elementary school in Cobb County. He noticed another 10-year-old girl walking home on yet another wooded trail. He didn't strike, though. Not yet. He came back the next day with a rug and a jar of lubricant in his car. You know, like normal people have. He waited on the trail for the girl, and was probably very happy to see that she was walking with eight-year-old Lori Ann Smith. Fresnel abducted them both. I'm already nauseous, and I haven't even gotten to the fucked up part yet. These poor girls. Fresnel taped their mouths shut and threatened to kill them if they didn't do what he wanted. He also told them he had a gun. They were put into his Plymouth Duster, boy that sure dates this crime doesn't it, and driven away from the trail. I wouldn't normally give a warning because this is a true crime podcast and you know what the fuck you're here for. But this is where shit gets gross and also kind of confusing. So if you can't handle a grown man doing fucked up things to little girls, maybe skip ahead a little. While driving, Presnell forced the older girl to orally sodomize him. Not sure how that would be possible while operating a vehicle, but alright. It was at this point he sexually assaulted her as well. Not going to go into much detail on that because it's fucking vile, but you can check my sources if you really want to know. After arriving at a secluded area, he walked both girls into the woods. He was carrying his rug and lubricant. Both girls were made to undress, and the older one was raped on the rug. She was injured pretty badly and began bleeding. At this point, Presnell told her to wait while he took Ann back to the car. As they were walking, Ann made a break for it, but Presnell caught her. He forced her face into a creek and drowned her. Her autopsy showed that there was sand, plant matter, and water in her lungs and stomach. It would have taken at least a minute for her to die. Bruises were found on her neck as well as on her back, where Presnell had put his knee to keep her underwater. My 2023 brain is screaming at this 10-year-old girl to get the fuck out of there, but I am all too aware that fear makes us all react differently. She was probably frozen. I'm usually the same way. When Presnell came back, he once again forced her to orally sodomize him. I am just stunned. What the actual fuck? After this, he put her in the trunk of his car and drove out of the woods. One of his tires went flat, so he ended up leaving her in a different wooded area after one final round of depravity. He left her alone in the woods, telling her that he'd be back. Thankfully, she had a moment of clarity and went to a nearby gas station. When the police arrived, she gave them a description of the monster who had attacked her and his car, also remarking that one of the tires was flat. Police soon found Presnell at his apartment complex, changing that tire. He initially denied everything, but it wasn't long before he told police he knew where the missing girl was and took them to Lorianne's body. He also eventually confessed. While searching Presnell's bedroom, they found a handgun and child pornography depicting young girls, of course. I can't help but think this may have been preventable. After all, he lived with his mother. But then again, she's kind of the one who fucked him up in the first place. Presnell was convicted of malice murder, kidnapping with bodily injury, and other crimes which I'm assuming related to his attacks on the older girl, and sentenced to death in October of 1976. But like most other disgusting wastes of human skin, he appealed. He was eventually given a new trial. Fresnel tried just about everything he could think of to get out of the death penalty, including complaints that prospective jurors were erroneously dismissed, the court denying his motion to suppress the gun and kitty porn found in his bedroom. And get this, this one's my favorite. The trial court erred by having the jurors place their left hands on the Bible while being sworn in. The court found no issues with the original conviction, and his original sentence of death was upheld by a new jury on March 16, 1999. Virgil Delano Presnell Jr. is still sitting on death row at the time of writing. Why? What the fuck, Colorado? Oh shit, we're all the way in the south now, my bad. This man confessed to doing disgusting things to little girls, led the police to a body, and had child porn in his room. Yet the state has used taxpayer money to keep him alive for almost 47 years. It's been argued by his lawyers that he's profoundly brain damaged and can't be put to death. Back in 1976, fetal alcohol syndrome apparently wasn't a diagnosis, so they couldn't use it as a mitigating factor. According to his lawyers, a just society does not execute the developmentally disabled. Maybe this case is a reason why sometimes we should. I looked, and he does not currently have a scheduled execution date. I can't give you his last words yet, but he did put in a request for his last meal before his execution was stayed the last time. He wants four hamburgers, four french fries, um, four boxes of them, or I'm not sure what the fuck. Two vanilla milkshakes, four sodas, an eight-piece bucket of chicken, potato salad, and two pints of vanilla ice cream. That was the request in May of 2022. I'm not sure if he can change it, but if not, that's what he'll be getting. May the drugs they push into your veins burn like that water in lori lungs, you sick fuck. And may lori soul rest in peace, knowing that you're finally gonna get what you deserve. Oof, I need a shower. That one made me sick and angry. Georgia has some fucking wild ones, that's for sure. Must be something in the iced tea. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Post that shit all over your social media. I got rid of Facebook last year, so my internet presence is pretty limited. I'm available on Rumble, as well as most places you can get podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram, at lastmealpod. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.